Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. The word "inferno" is the Italian for hell, an imaginary creation by the 14th-century poet Dante. The inferno is the first part of the Divine Comedy, followed by Purgatorio and Paradiso. One of the most therapeutic books in the world, it is about a hero's journey through hell, guided by the ancient Roman poet Virgil. In the poem, hell is described as nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth. It is, to quote the original, the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values by yielding to bestial appetites or violence, or by perverting their human intellect to fraud or malice against their fellow man. Since its publication, over 129 translators have shared their creative attempts in translating the work, and more frequently among these translations are English. With us today is Professor Marco Sanzini from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, who will talk about how different versions of translation highlight the thematic tension of Inferno. Marco, so excited to have you join the show. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so my name is Marco, and um, I uh, studied languages at university. I always loved languages. I did my undergraduate studies in Italy, and then I did my postgraduate studies in Ireland, where、mm-hmm. I was for twelve years. I also started my、uh, academic career there, and then life circumstances, a job came up in New Zealand. I applied, and I pretty much did what Dante does at the end of Inferno: a somersault, and I came out the other side, <laughs> and in the other in the other hemisphere. And I've been here now sixteen years. And、uh, recently, somebody called me a literary trickster and、uh, a cultural activist. I like to think of of those two terms as describing me accurately. I love my job. My passion is to share. Cultural patrimony that, that that's been shared with me and to pass it on for future generations. So I think, and I do that with a, a slightly counter. I like to, to look at things from a different perspective. And coming to New Zealand, in a way, I know it sounds may sound cheap, but coming on the other side of the planet, literally as well as allegorically, did change my view of things. You you, you ask questions in a different way. You look at them in a different way. The sky moves in a different way.、Mm-hmm. You open the tap. The water circles in a different way. So. That's very refreshing, and it's also very humbling. You stop your prejudices, you you leave your baggage, and you look afresh. And I think that's exactly what Dante does when he lifts up his head out of hell. He looks up at the sky, he sees oh, you know, so this is different, and he sees the Southern Cross, which I see every day. So every day that I see the Southern Cross, I think of Dante. There you go. Sounds wonderful. So let's start with the context. Could you talk a bit about why Dante was exiled and how this painful experience and philosophical reflection on it shaped the narrative structure of the poem? Yes. Now you know we sometimes we think of the Middle Ages as you know very、uh, very distant from us,、uh, but I think one of the things that 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 Dante that the reason why Dante seven hundred years after his death, seven hundred and one year after his death, is still there is it was a A 360-degree human.、Mm-hmm. He came into life at a time of, of turmoil. You know, the Middle Ages. A lot of things were changing. Italy was a collection of, of of states, of languages, of cultures, of currencies. And his family. I think when Dante is born,、uh, he's born into Florence in one of the rare occasions where the Ghibellini、mm-hmm. party is in power. And I think he is from a, a, a Guelph family, not not too influential. So he. He is there. 
and he finds himself uh, aware of, if you like, change change about to happen or, or change, you know, when those moments where you're on the crisp of change. And I think it's an exciting moment. And mm-hmm. I think as we as we're trying to come out of a pandemic, big crises are always a prelude for big changes. So that he is. And I think he's a principal man is uh, mm-hmm. what I like to think of as a committed civilian. He mm-hmm. cares about the city, cares about the state, he cares and he cares about values. Mm-hmm. And he's an intellectual. He, he probably reads everything that he can set his hands on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he reads a lot in translation. Uh, mostly, you know, like he couldn't speak Greek. So he, everything that he reads, he would have come to him through Latin translation. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he, he starts thinking, you know, what, what makes us a, a society, what makes us a place, what makes us people. And language and literature for him are an important, and politics mm-hmm. uh, are an important part of it. And uh his, his political uh, views, I think he's, I don't want to call it political views because to this day, there are people that question, was he well for Ghibellino? There are people saying one side of the story, people saying one other side of the story. What I'd like to say is that he was 100% aligned with his values. Mm-hmm. And of course that created tensions. He probably got on the wrong side of the stick with many people and uh, he had to leave. And I think the exilic experience, mm-hmm. um, and we may, I, I might fast track a bit and I'm thinking of a similar experience, for example, that the poet Shemusini did mm-hmm. when he left Northern Ireland for the South. was liberating, he started writing, he gave him a, a sense of the country, a sense of Italy, this constellation of languages and states. He also experienced patronage, so mm-hmm. he experienced help, but he also experienced, you know, how salty the bread that is cooked by others is, as he says, quanto sa di sale lo pane altrui, you know? And it's, I think, through that kind of uh, challenge, he, he he fortified his own beliefs, but also his own literary mission, and he gifted us this wonderful, wonderful poem. I think it's actually, mm-hmm. yeah, it's actually the story of everybody's life. You know, we go to hell, we have to go, we have to go to hell. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the Italian, gov- Italian people and the Italian government chose the end of Inferno. Uh, when lockdown, when we ca- came out of lockdown. Inferno is a very advanced form of literary lockdown, if you allow me to use this, you know, this expression. So how is the poetic fashion of courtly love, and especially Dante's own courtly love with his childhood lover Beatrice, reflected in the poem? And how does the figure of Beatrice help the hero's journey in the poem? It's a very, very, very good question. Now, among the many things that were that were that were changing at the time, there was this kind of new new um, school of poetry. Yeah? I'm using this school of poetry, which was the Dolce Still novel, mm-hmm. which wasn't just a school of poetry; it was a school of thinking, a school of life. Mm-hmm. And the origin of Italian poetry is in music, is in singing. You know, troubadours singing, and you need an inspiration. You're not necessarily singing for yourself. So the mm-hmm. idea of some sort of enhancing and heightening form of inspiration. And the, um, the Dolce novel believed in courtly love. And uh, in my years in Ireland, I realized that there was, you know, there are various forms around the, in world literature where courtly love, sort of platonic love that is not physical, is not sexual, but it is an instrument for elevation, for spiritual elevation. And so Dante in this is uh, not alone. There are other poets that he learned from and writes in the same time, mm-hmm. so writes in the same fashion. And I think when he meets Beatrice, uh, uh, like when Petrarca meets uh, Laura, 
whether it's fictional or allegorical, there is this sort of intervention of a muse that is codified as female and beautiful. And it, she could be real, she could be allegorical, but that's an opportunity to undertake a journey of elevation. And that's exactly what Dante does. I mean, he, she only comes in towards the end of the book and right. he, chooses, <laughs> he, he chooses a fellow poet to, to do the dirty work and be ready for when, when, she's, when she's, you know, when he's ready to meet her, then she becomes another, an instrument for further elevation. So, and that, that's not a bad, it's not a bad way of figuring out a muse, you know, again, whether, you know, whether we want to believe in, in Beatrice and Laura as real people or imagine thief, uh, personified values, it never, it never bothered me. But I like to think of Dante, and I'll tell you this story. I read a wonderful book about him. It's a fictional uh, book by Giulio Leone, I think. And it's uh, one of the finest books on fictionalized account of Dante's life that I've ever read. Easy, easy. He's also, uh, he meets, uh, if I remember correctly, an Arabic looking Muslim woman in, in, in a tavern and, and he's completely seduced by her. So this is the most anti-Dante account of Dante that I've ever come across, but he makes him real. And that's what I love about the poet. This poet was, you know, he was a man at a time engaged with the politics, paid a hard price. He was in battle. He saw um, what man is capable of for better and for worse. Mm-hmm. And then went off and wrote 100 cantos of a poem that is edifying, is universal, is, is, is eternal in the way that it charts every human's opportunity to grow intellectually and spiritually if, 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 if we want to. I mean, people will say this is very Christian and it's very hellish and it's very, you know, dark ages. We don't write in isolation. Dante is a product of his own time and of his own readings and of his own ideas. But um, as I told you before we went on air, um, when people say that, my answer would be, where will you be in 700 years? Will anybody talk about you and me in 700 years? Probably not. So if 700 years on, we're still here talking about Dante, it means that he struck some chords that are universal and that attach, you know, every human's life question very deeply. Right, right. Could you tell us a bit about the language that Dante used to write this poem? How different Tuscan is from Virgil's Latin? Because we know that Latin was then considered a highly respected language of the elite society, right? It's absolutely fascinating that how the vernacularism of Tuscan describing a once obsolete worldview could make the poem a now celebrated iconoclast and linguistic invention. That's a very good question. You could be talking about this for like a week. Now, <laughs> if, you're a, yeah, if you're a writer, you know, you're a writer, you start thinking, okay, what do I, I want to do? How do I want to write? What language am I going to write? And then at some point you're going to ask the question, okay, if I want to get a job, what language am I going to use? And Latin was the language that every learned person at the time would write, you know? Right. So, but then, then you start thinking, okay, I'm writing in this language. Will I be understood by how many? Mm-hmm. What are the options? I mean, that question, the, what we call in Italian, we call la questione della lingua, mm-hmm. will continue to come right away to you. You know, people think of Italy, you know, maybe people associate Italy, you know, as we've always been there. Well, the truth is we've been there as Italy only since 1861. Before then, we were a collection of states, each of which had its own language, its own dialect, its own currency, its own politics, its own way of doing things. So partly through exile, it's interesting because Dante writes this book called The Vulgari Eloquentia, which is a, a treaty on the purposes of having a, 
a sort of enhanced vernacular as a shared language. And he abruptly, he finishes in book, he wanted to write four books and then he gets to chapter 14 in book two and he stops very abruptly. Scholars are trying to figure out what happened there. But I think it's a, it's a legitimate question. Now I, and, and I'm, I'm answering you a little bit by detour. So Petrarca writes 365 sonnets for Laura and he says, sort of say, I'm very sorry, folks. This is not a serious piece of work because I'm using the vernacular. And then everybody remembers him for the vernacular and nobody almost, I mean, unless you're a scholar of, right. of Petrarch's other writings. You know. So something, sometimes things happen for a reason. You want to unify an, a, you know, a group of people, a society. You want to find a way to be readable and accessible. Mm -hmm. As a writer myself, I want to be read by as many people as possible. And I have a choice. Am I going to read a, a, write in a language that only a certain group will, will read? And then the other question will be, you know, I think Dante had a pretty learned reader in mind when he when he wrote the commedia because all the allusions all the quotations all the references to the sources that are now made explicit in footnotes they weren't exactly there at the time so he sort mm -hmm. of assumed that people would recognize them i remember a scholar we, we we shall leave him nameless because i mean he was, a, he was one of my mentors and i loved him dearly he said you know the divine comedy is an appendix to the innate <laughs> i think it's a bit of a it's a bit of an it's a bit of an exaggeration but you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of similarities and you can see that. But, um, so the question is, you know, you want to be learned, you want to be read, you want to be accessible, you want to make money, you want to become famous, you want the court to love you. These are all the questions. And I think at some point you, you go around, you find, and that's what Manzoni also did. Manzoni wrote the Promessi Sposi, which is another love story, if you like. And he wrote it in Milan. He is set in Milan. And then at some point he says, well, let me go to Florence. He says mm -hmm. to wash to wash my clothes in the Arno, so to purify the language so that it loses dialectal and sort of foreign influences and it becomes more accessible and readable by everybody. Now, that's what 1840, so that's 20 years before Italy has anything but a, uni a geographical unification. So Dante, in a way, sets in motion la questione della lingua. What is the, the language that we're going to write about? And uh, just before him, I think a little bit before him, you know, this, you know, the, the poets were writing in various forms of proto-Italian. And if you ask me, yeah, it is very different from Latin. It's certainly very different from Virgil's Latin. Mm -hmm. But language evolved like we do. Uh, language age, you know, every language ages through, through time. That's it right. gets in contact with other languages. It gets, I don't like to use the word corrupted. It gets contaminated or it gets, you know, it gets, yeah, into contact with other linguistic possibilities and mm -hmm. who else but a writer can understand those points of contact better and every serious writer will ask themselves the questions which language am i going to write now if we want to make a, 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 a make it an issue in a political issue yeah let's make it a political issue you know at some point it becomes an issue of power balance you know indigenous people the maori here in new zealand some of them write in maori mm -hmm. and they have a very limited readership others they do a counter-colonial a post-colonial revenge, they take English and make English become their voice. So the question of which language I'm going to write in and why uh, will always going to be there. Um, and I, I think someone like you with a hyphenated identity, having, you know, English and Chinese, you'll be voicing different issues or different missions or visions about what you want to do and who you want to be through the through language. Mm -hmm. We are using this language with literary intentions. You're you're making a statement. And then people will say, all right, why? Mm -hmm. So then from then on, Italian 
develops out of literary Tuscan. But if somebody else had said, and they could have said, I mean, you know where poetry is born? Poetry is born in the country of Frederick II in Sicily. The first sonneteers, Cielo d'Alcamo, all these people, they're, they're there. If somebody there said, all right, this is the Italian literary language. From now on, we're using this one. But anyway, so that's a lot of sorry. I think that's why I love Italian so much because there are multiple, multiple origins and languages in it that, right. that, that, that have made it what it is. And yes, we descend from Latin, but awesome. yeah, it's a long journey that is still continuing today. In your opinion, why does Divine Comedy and especially Inferno attract Anglophone translators most? It's a very good question. I mean, for starters, it's what I call it's a three-dimensional book. You know, you like this idea of, of um, we all like a bit of crime and punishment stuff. You know, if you have if you speak too much, you're going to be burning in hell and not being able to speak. You know, if, if you had too much sex or if you were adulterous, then you're going to be chasing the person you want to be and you never touch her. So this idea of, you know, sort of maniche and black and white, good, or right and wrong. And we are all sort of very, feel very human. Every single possible aspect of humanity from sex to food, politics, loyalty, disloyalty, they're all there. So they're very real stories. We can understand them. Now, with Purgatorio and Paradiso, it becomes, for many, very theological, very abstract. It's all about light and music and whispers, you know. So Inferno has this. And if you think about, you know, a lot of, Dante, a lot of Dante's translators into English, they were Victorian, even Protestant ministers. You know, people that said, oh, here we've got example. You know, if you don't behave, you don't leave, this is what happens to you. And Fantastic. Rather than letting the Bible tell you that, why not use a, a work of literature to do that? I was astonished to see how many priests and pastors and ministers um, try to translate Divine Comedy. I remember this guy in, in Nottingham, he was Reverend Plumtree, mm -hmm. who translates the first five cantos of Inferno, sends them on to Cardinal Newman, who sort of reads them and he says, oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, they're not too bad. You know, and then he says, I was reading someone else's translation and it made me fall asleep. Um, but it's clearly, as I say, everyone would recognize in Inferno, and maybe that's the purpose. Oh, I've done that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see what he talks about. And so they're very real stories and stories that we can relate to. And also the idea of going through dark times, mm -hmm. whether it's a forest or your room because you're depressed or your office because you're being bullied, Mm -hmm. or the trenches in, of war in Ukraine, we'll, we are all going through some form of hell in one way or another. I, can, I cannot think of one person I know that hasn't been through hell and back once. So that, right. that is a very relatable story. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're telling people about the earthly paradise, loads of birds and lovely fruits and vegetables and it's warm and you don't need any clothes, then I say, okay, I can go to Samoa. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly it earthly paradise exist. But as George Steiner said, early paradise must have been very boring. You know, you don't need language. Uh, you have direct communication with God. You're completely pure. Everything is perfect. Uh, it's a bit boring after a while, but right. inferno that you've got the Jews that you see the good and bad of humans, uh, more bad than good. Uh, but it's always open. Dante gives you that. You know, it tells you in Canto 3, go through this door, there's no hope. But he... He is a firm believer in hope. You know, even Inferno ends with stars. You know, you've come up. We come up to see the stars again. Also, I, I often thought uh, I haven't done a lot of research into this, but I've I've spent a lot of time with um, Buddhist and 
uh, Hinduist mm-hmm. friends and with Vaishnava, with spiritual, you know, Vaishnava uh, scholars and 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 uh, sages and Nirvana, you know. We hope you have enjoyed the episode so far. If you want to hear the entire episode, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.